Hello, my name's Andrew Skipper. I'm head of the Africa practice at Hogan Lovells, and I have wide-ranging Africa experience from business to art and culture. I'm co-vice chair of the Smithsonian National Museum of African Art and co-chair of the UK government's Africa Investors Group. This is the fourth series of the A Perspective podcast, in which I've been having conversations with some of Africa's top business minds and investors alongside key cultural influences. People who are deeply committed to building on the continent and spreading the word and the vision, but in a diverse way, and they're certainly not pulling any punches about the problems, but they're also spotting and delivering on enormous opportunities. So today I turn to Geetha Dharmaratnam, an investment executive with more than 19 years of experience in private equity, venture capital, development finance, impact investing and insurance in Africa, Asia, Latin America and Europe. She's had a focus on SMEs, gender lens investing, healthcare, and financial services. Geetha is currently the CEO of Equalitas Capital Partners and leads their impact investment practice. She advises a range of stakeholders interested in creating and implementing impact investment and sustainable development goals related financing products. Most recently, as senior investment advisor to the UN Economic Commission for Africa, She's helped to develop a fund of funds to invest in female African investors. The Africa Women's Leadership Fund launched in February 2020 with commitments from three African governments and several private investors. Her experience is broad with LGT Impact as a founding partner of T5 Africa Capital Partners with the Abraj Group, Areas Capital and Alea Group. She's also with me, a council member and trustee of the Royal African Society. So welcome, Geetha. We have a lot to discuss and it's great to be speaking to you today. Thank you, Andrew. I'm looking forward to an interesting conversation. Yeah, I mean, as I say, you've had a focus on investment in Africa for many years. And I recently heard in your discussions on the Start the Week programme on BBC, you have very strong views on the situation of the continent. Can you give me a quick overview of how you see the outlook for private sector investors on the continent as we hopefully move towards a more stable situation? Well, you know, the work that I do in Africa, it very much feels like it's coming full circle. Mm. Having been born in uh, Malawi, growing up in Zambia and Botswana, the Africa that I grew up with is one that I very rarely recognize when it comes to the representation of the continent in terms of media. But what I'm liking more and more is as we have more social media emerging, mm. I think people are able to tell the story of Africa in its diversity. And we see this as well in institutions which are trying to get a clear message out, including the Royal Africa Society. So from a business perspective, I see Africa as a thriving set of economies where there are very many things happening. And it comes down to, if you want to invest in Africa, finding the right people and making sure that those right people have the right networks and skills to be able to identify the right businesses to invest in, the right economies to invest in. And being able to add value beyond just capital. So it's easy to uh, give you the, the statistics with yeah. which you and your listeners are going to be incredibly familiar with, right? And mm. especially pre-COVID, um, we were seeing a tremendous GDP growth rate in Africa. Uh, and uh, last year, because of COVID, the continent entered its first recession for uh, in decades. Mm. Uh, that said, the rebound is going to be, on average, uh, going to result in a higher GDP growth than you, we are experiencing in, or likely to uh, experience in many different continents. So again, for me, whether it's pre-COVID, during COVID, and, and hopefully soon to be post-COVID, 
what is most important if you are looking at investing in Africa is making sure you found the right people with whom to engage, making sure that these individuals are truly plugged into the networks to understand what the, the real situation is and to be able to look beyond what we call sort of headlines, right? Yeah. To yeah, yeah. look beyond GDP per capita, to look beyond the average amount of consumption power per person so that you're able to identify with that specific business. What is that business solving for with this product or its service? Who are its clients really? Does the entrepreneur fully understand the direction of travel of the business? And is this the right investment and investment partner for this business? In this way, Andrew, I don't think these questions are going to be fundamentally different to the questions anyone should be yeah. asking when making a decision about investing in the UK or in the US or really anywhere. You're absolutely right, because it treats Africa in a grown-up way in terms of looking at how you invest it and making sure you understand essentially what you're investing in. So what do you see as the, the key factors driving investment in the, in the next year? I think the first thing is uh, because of what a kind of disruption we've had over the last year, yeah. the integration of technology in the, into the provision of services and goods has been a, a main driver. And so that's one thing I think is going to be quite different. And also, especially over the last 18 to 24 months, we've seen a real acceleration on the venture capital side. So these, are, these trends are, are trends I expect to see continue. It's also introduced a number of investors, especially out of North America, who haven't really looked very much at Africa previously. But when you look at the acquisition, for example, of Paystack, if you look yes. at Flutterwave, the Flutterwave's funding round, you'll see that the venture capital side is really growing. There's a huge amount of dynamism uh, within that. Separate to that, I think we're going to still see a stable rise in the more traditional private equity type transactions. And when we look at that, I would refer to the latest information that has come out from the annual Africa Private Equity Data Tracker, mm. which the African Private Equity and Venture Capital Association puts together. Mm. That's the industry body. Um, they keep a track of everything. So if you kind of look even within a five-year period, Andrew, yeah. between 2015 and 2020, there was about $18 billion dollars which was raised. Uh, and in that same time period, um, just over $21 billion was was actually deployed. And that was deployed into about 1,250 transactions. So a second thing I think is going to be happening over the course of the next two to three years is I think a return to solidly mid-market or larger okay. uh, deals, which are larger, small deals, if you know what I mean, yeah, yeah. which are going to be done, which are linked into the real economy. We see, uh, again, the, the three largest share of transactions have really been uh, on the financial side. There's been some on the, uh, there's been quite a bit of a cluster on the utility side. And the third area of focus has been on the energy side. These are sectors which can take quite a bit of capital. Mm. But if you look at from an individual, what's being driven by individual consumption, a lot on the financial services side, both on the PE and the fintech. Manufacturing is the, um, is the second. And I would really like to say that we're going to see a lot more happen on the healthcare side. And I think there's going to be fresh capital already looking for healthcare transactions. But I think going forward, what is very clear is um, the situation we had before, where between 2015 and about 2018, only 3% of PE capital that was invested went into healthcare. I think we're going to see more capital going into healthcare, but willing to do things which are more unusual, which includes funding the expansion of 
transactions in the logistics space to facilitate healthcare and so forth. So drones and the like, you think? I think there already has been a lot of excitement over yeah. drones. I'm a little bit more traditional in my view in terms of I think what we need more of, frankly, is uh, stable cold chain storage okay. to be able to trans uh, to transport vaccines and not just the COVID vaccine. With the good news, we're hearing about malaria. Um, we already had uh, a significant distribution uh, capacity need for other medicines. Yeah. I think that's what's going to be driving the, the future. There's 54 countries in Africa. Which which are the ones, do you, do you see any particular areas of growth or targeting from your point of view? So, you know, we've got the four largest economies yeah. by by. By way of which of these economies attracts the most capital, mm. it tends to be Egypt, South Africa, Nigeria, and at Kenya. That said, I think we have a opportunity with the uh, implementation of the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement. Yeah, and it's going to take a while, but nonetheless, there was something which predated the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement, and that is the regional bodies. Mm. So I think this is a treaty that will truly transform. Africa from being more uh, fractured and very commodity dependent uh, into a set of economies which have the possibility of being truly integrated. I mean, it was ironic that as the UK was yes. out, right, yes. after the EU, Africa was signing up to create the largest uh, integrated uh, market. And that's over 1.2 billion people, but the continent itself is massive. So the ability to trade across borders is reliant on so many things, including, again, the logistics. Yeah, and I think the more, more and more people are talking about Africa in a positive way, even though they think it might take some time. Changing the theme a little bit, I've spoken to a number of investors and commentators in, in the last year who are convinced about the need to create a more diverse environment for business on the continent. And I know this is a passion of yours. Can you give me some background to why this is so important in your view in the, in the financial sector and some of the steps you see as being critical to take to remedy the situation? Sure. Uh, I think one of the biggest problems we have is mm. the lack of inclusion of women. Yeah. Um, and that is across the entire financing value chain, all the way from insufficient women making decisions at the LP level uh, to the GPs, the investment firms who are making investment decisions as to which businesses to back, uh, and definitely insufficient numbers of women who, uh, entrepreneurs who are being funded. Now, if you take that one level further, uh, Andrew, what mm. you see is there is a significant amount of uh, spending power which is held in the hands of women consumers. Yeah. So the inability to actually integrate women as decision makers along this entire chain actually creates a negative incentive for all parties. And the outcome is not as strong from a commercial perspective, from a financial return perspective, from an economic growth perspective, as if there was inclusion, genuine inclusion of women in the investment decision making. And it is too easy to think about investing in women in Africa as thinking about it from the perspective of micro enterprises, not taking away from the importance of that particular argument. If you look at some of the large pharmaceutical manufacturing firms, for example, or the largest uh, diagnostics firm, which is in Egypt. Yeah. These were founded and were run and are run by women. Mm. So if you look back to some information that came out of Brighter Bridges last year, 
in 2018, of all the venture capital that went into Africa, only 2% went into women-led organizations. Goodness me. These numbers, by the way, don't get that much better when you look across emerging markets. But let's try and solve this for Africa, at least do better. So this is how I got involved in the initiative that was launched uh, by the UN Economic Commission Mm. for Africa under Dr. Vera Songwe and the African Union, which was uh, recognizing the lack of funding for female African investors, because therein lies the other issue, which is making sure there is enough inclusion of Africans in the deployment of capital, as opposed to non-Africans who are operating on the continent. Just last week, actually, we launched training on behalf of the ECA for over 150 African women who are intending to raise funds in the next one to three years. And this training is taking them through from beginning to end what they need to be aware of and think about in developing everything from their fund strategy to the legal close and everything in between. That's really impressive. Talking to other people and and to you previously, this does actually make the bottom line difference as well, doesn't it? Have Have you seen that happening yourself? Very much so. Um, it's been our experience, actually, in the investments that we have done previously, but the statistics also stand uh, on their own two feet. And the thing is, uh, Andrew, I think we are past a point of trying to get yet another data point because there are sufficient data points. The IFC did a tremendous piece of work together with Oliver Wyman and Rock Creek a few years ago. And uh, the numbers that they, they found were statistically significant. So on one hand, as a very numbers-driven person, I would love to just keep throwing numbers at you like (laughs) that when women are 30% or more of the uh, investment team for the funds that they analyzed, the performance of these funds provided a 20% greater net IRR. Uh, In the bottom quartile, these funds performed with a better return of 50%. The uh, risks in these funds were lower. The number of women entrepreneurs that these funds invested in was twice as many. I can keep going. Yeah. I can really keep going. But to some extent, Andrew, I think that we missed the point because we are all focused, COVID or no COVID, we are all focused on wanting to see uh, better outcomes, more exactly. resilient outcomes. I mean, that takes me really on to the question of impact funding, which is something which you are very focused on. But I know you also have some fairly robust views on what that means. And I've spoken in the past to people who say when you're making, uh, if you're doing something as a strategic investment, that normally means you're going to lose money and you're just pretending about investing. Is there something similar with impact funding? What does it actually mean to you in terms of and what responsibilities and accountabilities does it bring to you as a fund manager when you're doing impact funding? Well, the first thing for me is um, impact investing is an area that Africa has been leading on for a very long time. We just call it impact investing. In fact, the term impact investing hasn't been around for very long. Mm. The GIN, the Global Impact Investing Network, which is the industry body globally for this space, found that uh, the largest focus of impact investors is actually Africa. So of the impact investors they spoke to, 43% of them Mm. said that they were investing in Africa. So on one hand, the intentionality is there, the LP side. Uh, Where I think we need to be very careful is that the intentionality and the performance has to be there on the GP side. Mm. This is where I think 
we need to move well past where a lot of the impact investing story has been uh, up until perhaps a year, year and a half ago, which has been mostly narrative driven. And the problem with narrative is the narrative, if it is not truly robust in explaining where the opportunities are and explaining where the challenges are, what you end up flogging is a image of Africa. Okay. And you then try and buy time to be able to show that you've been able to make a difference. And what I really like to see is more and more fund managers are coming online now. And I think this next generation of fund managers in discussion with even the women who uh, we're training are very clear about the intentionality that they have and making sure that it is not subsuming the provision of returns. Because otherwise what happens is many impact investors in the past have raised capital selling a particular story of the impact they intend to have. Mm -hmm. However, it's not woven through the investment process. The measurement is not necessarily linked to that first criteria that they said that they were actually going to be uh, measuring or delivering against. And that gap widening, I think, has the danger of disrupting the rise of impact investing. So for me, the first thing is, what is the intention? Mm. Uh, you as a fund manager, if you are raising an impact fund, what is your intentionality? Number two, in the same way that you need to evidence the way in which your team has both the skill set and the experience and the track record to deliver on the strategy, you need to show the same thing for how you're going to deliver on the impact strategy. Yeah. The third thing is nice stories. We need to get well past this. I forget who said this. The plural of data is not narrative. <laughs> so we really need to get past pretty words and focus on what the real outcomes are of these investments and do it in a way which is directly measurable okay. because trying to understand how these economies are moving as a result or people's lives are getting better in three generations is in my view insufficient to be truly accountable to the impact mandate it's creating something which isn't an excuse for not achieving something but rather an accountable outcome which you can measure i guess I'd like to turn a bit to one of the things you focused on in the past is SMEs. And I think a lot of people are worried that SMEs are being potentially ignored in the current crisis and are struggling to get funding. Why are they so important to you think to driving the economy and what, what steps need to be taken to support them at the moment, would you say? Well, I, I think uh, the reason why SMEs are so important is because they're the bulk of the economies yeah. of, across Africa. And arguably, um, this is exactly the reason why private equity was developed in the UK. Mm. So post-World War II, um, as I mentioned on the Andrew Marsh show, the establishment of 3I yeah, yeah, was yeah, yeah, no. right? yeah. on recognizing the criticality of financing SMEs. Course, yeah. So in Africa... No difference there. Absolutely no difference. And it also is critical because if you look at the very statistics that excite so many people, myself included, about the future of Africa, which is the increasing urbanization, the youth population, and the shift which is resulting in a larger disposable income being driven on the continent, much of that is predicated on people having jobs. The ability to scale up large businesses to increase the number of jobs that people have access to uh, is significant, but there are not sufficient large numbers of large businesses. So the only way I believe that you're going to truly transform the economies of the continent is to be investing in SMEs. It's sort of relatively easy to say that, but how do you actually get the cash to them, would you say? 
Well, the first thing is there are quite a lot of fund managers who are already out there. There are a lot more who are raising. Um, and the first step is being convinced enough that the financial return, the impact that's coming from that is going to justify putting capital in. So that's a decision that LPs would be making, right? Yeah. In terms of capital to the SMEs, I think it's also about ensuring that whoever it, the investors are, the GPs are, mm. they are sufficiently incentivized and mandated to specifically invest in SMEs as opposed to get tempted after you've raised capital to do the larger transactions, of which there are very few. Interestingly enough, what we have seen is some of the highest returns are coming from the smaller investments. Okay. And that's really the larger side of the S and the smaller side of the M mm. because they arguably less competition around those transactions and a significant amount of room to grow once they have capital access to networks and, and everything that comes with it. There's a lot of talk about a lot of countries looking to invest in Africa at the moment and the role of international investment and the international community. How do you see that happening? And do you see just from the UK's point of view with their recent integrated review, do you see anything? Is there positive message about that or, do you, or are you concerned? I think there is a great deal of opportunity to invest in Africa and there's the traditional way of investing, which is finding intermediaries and investing through there. Yeah. Um, so we're not talking necessarily about government to government, but we're talking about the uh, investment activity from investors who are based in one country investing in uh, one or more countries on the continent, right? So that's the area that I, I look at and have been engaged in. And when I look at that, I think there is a lot of opportunity. If I think about the integrated review, there was very little about Africa in there. Yeah. Um, but that said, if you wind back one year, there was a significant amount of activity between the UK government and various countries on the continent mm. in terms of laying the groundwork to say, especially post-Brexit, the UK is very serious about engaging actively with Africa as increase, increased engagement anyways as a, as a trading partner as well as an investment partner. So what I am hoping is that the integrated review was quiet, but that the activity that is intended is not going to be quiet. That's what I'm hoping. I think deeds will speak louder than words, I, I hope. I agree. Okay. Final question, really. What makes you positive about investing in Africa at the moment? This is something you do. This is something you encourage. What really makes you positive at the moment? It's the same thing that had me positive three years ago, five years ago, yeah. 10 years ago, um, Andrew. The thing about investing in Africa, and you are somebody who is so aware of what's going on there. You, uh, Pre-COVID, you were traveling in and out a lot. The vibrancy of the continent really cannot be underscored. And that is what keeps me positive because whether you go to Lagos or whether you go to Nairobi, whether you go to Addis Ababa, uh, whether you go to Lusaka, wherever it is, the bustling and the hustling that is happening I think is an indication of the potential and the reality of the various e elements of the, of the economies. What I love doing is working with entrepreneurs who are from the region, based in the region, and the issues that you're trying to resolve working with them is really fascinating because they are trying to really try and get to growth, get to scale, reduce the cost of operations, uh, embed innovation in the businesses that they are running. And those issues are just fantastic to work through because you see the results almost immediately. And uh, so when we talk about industries without smokestacks, mm. uh, 
some of the most dynamic sectors of the economies in Africa. I'm really excited about that. Uh, when I think about agriculture, it's still a very large part of GDP on the continent. The flip side of that is, of course, food security. And around the world, we're seeing the, the importance of that. I mean, here in the UK, there have been discussions about food security yes. after leaving the EU. Mm. And so I think that there are new potential pathways that are being forged, but the existing pathways are so rich and dynamic. And that all just keeps me very excited. Thank you very much. Great answer. Geetha Thalmaratnam of Aqualitas Capital, thank you very much indeed for that great contribution to the A Perspective. Thank you, Geetha. Thank you for having me, Andrew.